Chapter Eighteen of the Curse of Carnes Hold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Curse of Carnes Hold by George Alfred Henty. Chapter Eighteen. George Forrester's Death. Ronald Mervyn led so active a life for some months after the departure of Mr. Armstrong and his daughter that he had little time to spend in thought, and it was only by seizing odd minutes between intervals of work that he could manage to send home a budget at all proportionate in size to that which he regularly received. When the courier came up with the English mails, there had been stern fighting, for although the British force was raised by the arrival of reinforcements from India and England to over five thousand men, with several batteries of artillery, it was with the greatest difficulty that it gradually won its way into the Kaffir stronghold. Several times the troops were so hardly pressed by the enemy that they could scarcely claim a victory, and a large number of officers and men fell. The cape-mounted rifles formed part of every expedition into the Amatolas, and had their full share of fighting. Ronald had several times distinguished himself, especially in the fight in the Waterkloof Valley, when Colonel Fordyce of the 74th and Carey and Gordon, two officers of the same regiment, were killed, together with several of their men, while attacking the enemy in the bush. He was aware now that his secret was known to the men. He had fancied that searching and inquisitive glances were directed towards him, and that there was a change in the demeanour of certain men of his troop, these being without exception the idlest and worst soldiers. It was Sergeant Menzies who first spoke to him on the subject. It was after a hard day's march when, having picketed their horses and eaten their hastily cooked rations, the two non-commissioned officers lit their pipes and sat down together at a short distance from the fire. I have been wanting to speak to you, lad, for the last day or two. There is a story gaining ground through the troop that, whether it is true or whether it is false, you ought to know. "'I guessed as much, Menzies,' Ronald said. "'I think I know what the story is, and who is the man who has spread it. "'It is that I bore another name in England.' "'Yes, that's partly it, lad. "'I hear that you are rightly Captain Mervyn.' "'Yes, that's it, Menzies, and that I was tried and acquitted for murder in England.' "'That's the story, my lad. "'Of course it makes no difference to us who you are, or what they say you have done.' We who know you would not believe you to have committed a murder, much less the murder of a woman, if all the juries in the world had said you had. Still, I thought I would let you know that the story is going about, so that you might not be taken aback if you heard it suddenly. Of course, it's no disgrace to be tried for murder, if you are found innocent. It only shows that some fools have made a mistake, and been proved to be wrong. Still, as it has been talked about, you ought to know it. There is a lot of feeling in the regiment about it now, and the fellow who told the story has had a rough time of it, and there's many a one will put a bullet into him if he had the chance. What they say is, whether you are Captain Mervyn or not, is nothing to anybody but yourself. If you were tried and acquitted for this affair, it ought to have dropped and nothing more been said about it, and they hold that, anyhow, a man belonging to the corps ought to have held his tongue about anything he knew against another who is such a credit to us the man might have held his tongue perhaps ronald said quietly but i never expected that he would do so 
the fellow comes from my neighbourhood and bore a bad character a man who has shot a gamekeeper would be pretty sure to tell anything he knew to the disadvantage of any one of superior rank to himself well sergeant you can only tell any one who asks you about it that you have questioned me and that i admitted at once that the story was true that i was captain mervyn and that i was tried for murder and acquitted some day i hope my innocence may be more thoroughly proved than it was on the day i was acquitted i dare say he has told the whole of the facts and i admit them freely well lad i am glad you have spoken of course it will make no difference except perhaps to a few men who will be better out of the corps than in it and they know too well what the temper of the men is to venture to show it i can understand now why you didn't take a commission i have often wondered over it for it seemed to me that it was just the thing you would have liked but i see that till this thing was cleared up you naturally wouldn't like it well i am heartily sorry for the business if you don't mind my saying so i have always been sure you were an officer before you joined us and wondered how it was that you left the army you must have had a sore time of it i am sorry for you from my heart ronald sat quiet for some time thinking after sergeant menzies left him then rose and walked towards the fire where the officers were sitting can i speak with you a few minutes captain twentyman he said the officer at once rose anything wrong in the troop sergeant no sir there is nothing the matter with the troop it is some business of my own may i ask you if you have heard anything about me captain twentyman heard anything in what way do you mean sergeant well sir as to my private history no the officer said somewhat puzzled well sir the thing has got about among the men there is one of them knew me at home and he has told the others now that it is known to the men sooner or later it will be known to the officers and therefore i thought it better to come and tell you myself as captain of my troop it can be nothing discreditable i am quite sure sergeant the officer said kindly well sir it is discreditable that is to say i lie under a heavy charge from which i am unable to clear myself i have been tried for it and found not guilty but i am sure that if i had been before a scotch jury the verdict would have been not proven and i left the court acquitted indeed but a disgraced and ruined man what was the charge the charge was murder ronald said quietly captain twentyman started but replied ridiculous no one who knew you would have thought you guilty for a moment i think that none who knew me intimately believed in my guilt but i am sure that most people who did not so know me believed me guilty i dare say you saw the case in the papers my real name captain twentyman is ronald mervyn and i was captain in the borderers i was tried for the murder of my cousin margaret Carne. good heavens is it possible captain twentyman exclaimed of course i remember the case perfectly we saw it in the english papers somewhere about a year ago and it was a general matter of conversation owing of course to your being in the army i didn't know what to think of it then but now i know you the idea of your murdering a woman seems perfectly ridiculous well is there anything you would wish me to do no sir i only thought you ought to be told i leave it with you to mention it to others or not perhaps you will think it best to say nothing until the story gets about then you can say you are aware of it yes i think that would be best captain twentyman said after thinking it over 
I remember that I thought when I read the account of the trial that you were either one of the most lucky or one of the most unfortunate men in the world. I see now that it was the latter. A few days later, an hour or two before the column was about to march, a flag hoisted at the post-office tent told the camp that the mail had arrived, and orderlies from each corps at once hurried there. As they brought the bags out, they were emptied on the ground. Some of the sergeants set to work to sort the letters, while officers stood around and picked out their own as they lay on the grass. "'Here, Blunt, here's one for you,' Sergeant Menzies said, when Ronald came up. Ronald took the letter, and, sauntering away a short distance, threw himself on the ground and opened it. After reading the first line or two, he leaped to his feet again, and took a few steps up and down, with his breath coming fast, and his hands twitching. Then he stood suddenly still, took off his cap, bent his head, put his hand over his eyes, and stood for a few minutes without moving. When he put his cap on again, his face was wet with tears. His hands were trembling, so that when he took the letter again, he could scarce read it. A sudden exclamation broke from him as he came upon the name of Forrester. The letter was so long that the trumpets were sounding by the time he had finished. He folded it and put it in his tunic, and then strode back with head erect to the spot where the men of his troop were saddling their horses. As he passed on among them, a sudden impulse seized him, and he stopped before one of the men and touched him on the shoulder. "'You villain,' he said, "'you have been accusing me of murder. You are a murderer yourself.' The man's face paled suddenly. "'I know you, George Forrester,' Ronald went on, "'and I know that you are guilty. You have to thank the woman who once loved you that I do not at once hand you over to the provost marshal to be sent to England for trial, but for her sake I will let you escape. Make a confession and sign it, and then go your way where you will, and no search shall be made for you. If you do not, to-morrow you shall be in the hands of the police. There is no evidence against me more than against any other, the man said sullenly. No evidence, you villain, Ronald said. Your knife, the knife with your initials on it, covered with blood, was found by the body. The man staggered as if struck. I knew I had lost it, he said, as if to himself, but I didn't know I dropped it there. At this moment the bugle sounded. I will give you until tomorrow morning to think about it, and Ronald ran off to mount his horse, which he had saddled before going for his letter. Sergeant Menzies caught sight of his comrade's face, as he sprang into the saddle. "'Hey, man,' he said, "'what's come to you? "'You have good news, haven't you, of some kind? "'Your face is transfigured, man.' "'The best,' Ronald said, "'holding out his hand to his comrade. "'I am proved to be innocent.' Menzies gave him a firm grip of the hand, and then each took his place in the ranks. There was desperate fighting that day with the Kaffirs. The cape-mounted rifles, while scouting ahead of the infantry in the bush, was suddenly attacked by an immense body of Kaffirs. Muskets cracked, and assegais flew in showers. Several of the men dropped, and discharging their rifles, the troopers fell back towards the infantry. As they retreated, Ronald looked back. One of the men of his troop, whose horse had been shot under him, had been overtaken by the enemy, and was surrounded by a score of Kaffirs. His cap was off, and Ronald caught sight of his face. He gave a shout, and in an instant had turned his horse and dashed towards the group. "'Come back, man, come back!' Captain Twentyman shouted. "'It's madness!' 
but Ronald did not hear him. The man whose confession could alone absolutely clear him was in the hands of the Kaffirs, and must be saved at any cost. A moment later he was in the midst of the natives, emptying his revolvers among them. Forrester had sunk on one knee, as Ronald, having emptied one of his revolvers, hurled it in the face of a Kaffir. Leaning over, he caught Forrester by the collar, and, with a mighty effort, lifted and threw him across the saddle in front of him. Then, bending over him, he spurred his horse through the natives. Just at this moment, Captain Twentyman and a score of the men rode up at full speed, drove the Kaffirs back for an instant, and enabled Ronald to rejoin his lines. Three assegais had struck him, and he reeled in the saddle as, amidst the cheers of his companions, he rode up. "'One of you take the wounded man in front of you,' Lieutenant Daniel said, "'and carry him to the rear. "'Thompson, do you jump up behind Sergeant Blunt and support him? "'There is no time to be lost. "'Quick, man, these fellows are coming on like the Furies.' "'The exchange was made in half a minute. "'One of the men took George Forrester before him. "'Another sprang up behind Ronald and held him in his saddle with one hand, "'while he took the reins in the other. "'Then they rode fast to the rear.' just as the leading battalion of infantry came up at a run and opened fire on the Kaffirs, who, with wild yells, were pressing on the rear of the cavalry. When Ronald recovered his senses, he was lying in the ambulance wagon, and the surgeon was dressing his wounds. "'That's right, Sergeant,' he said cheeringly. "'I think you will do. You have three nasty wounds, but by good luck I don't think any of them are vital.' "'How is Forrester?' Ronald asked. "'Forrester?' the surgeon repeated in surprise. "'Whom do you mean, Blunt?' "'I mean Jim Smith, sir. His real name was Forrester.' "'There is nothing to be done for him,' the surgeon said. "'Nothing can save him. He is riddled with spears.' "'Is he conscious?' Ronald asked. "'No, not at present.' "'Will he become conscious before he dies, sir?' "'I don't know,' the surgeon replied, somewhat puzzled at Ronald's question. "'He may be, but I cannot say.' "'It is everything to me, sir,' Ronald said. "'I have been accused of a great crime, of which he is the author. "'He can clear me if he will. "'All my future life depends upon his speaking.' "'Then I hope he may be able to speak, Blunt, "'but at present I can't say whether he will recover consciousness or not. "'He is in the wagon here, and I will let you know directly if there is any change.' "'Ronald lay quiet, listening to the firing that gradually became more distant.' showing that the infantry were driving the Kaffirs back into the bush. Wounded men were brought in fast, and the surgeon and his assistant were fully occupied. The wagon was halted now, and at Ronald's request the stretchers upon which he and Forrester were lying were taken out and laid on the grass under the shade of a tree. Towards evening, the surgeon, having finished his pressing work, came to them. He felt George Forrester's pulse. "'He is sinking fast,' he said, in reply to Ronald's anxious look but I will see what I can do. He poured some brandy between George Forrester's lips and held a bottle of ammonia to his nose. Presently there was a deep sigh, and then Forrester opened his eyes. For a minute he looked round vaguely, and then his eye fell upon Ronald. "'So you got me out of the hands of the Kaffirs, Captain Mervyn,' he said in a faint voice. "'I caught sight of you among them as I went down. I know they have done for me, but I would rather be buried whole than hacked into pieces. "'I did my best for you, Forrester,' Mervyn said. "'I am sorry I was not up a minute sooner. "'Now, Forrester, 
"'You see, I have been hit pretty hard, too. "'Will you do one thing for me? "'I want you to confess about what I was speaking to you. "'It will make all the difference to other people.' "'I may as well tell the truth as not,' Forrester said, "'though I don't see how it makes much difference.' "'Doctor,' Ronald said, "'could you kindly send and ask Captain Twentyman "'and Lieutenant Daniels to come here at once? "'I want them to hear.' "'George Forrester's eyes were closed.' and he was breathing faintly when the two officers, who had ridden up a few minutes before with their corps, came up to the spot. The surgeon again gave the wounded man some strong cordial. "'Will you write down what he says?' Ronald asked Captain Twentyman. The latter took out a notebook and pencil. "'I make this confession,' Forrester said faintly, "'at the request of Captain Mervyn, who risked his life in getting me out from among the Kaffirs.' My real name is George Forrester, and at home I live near Carnesford in Devonshire. I was one night poaching in Mr. Carne's woods with some men from Dareport when we came upon the keepers. There was a fight. One of the keepers knocked my gun out of my hand, and as he raised his stick to knock me on the head, I whipped out my knife, opened it, and stuck it into him. I didn't mean to kill him. It was just done in a moment, but he died from it. We ran away. Afterwards I found that I had lost my knife. I suppose I dropped it. That's all I have to say. Not all, Forrester, not all, said Ronald, who had listened with impatience to the slowly uttered words of the wounded man. Not all. It isn't that, but about the murder of Miss Carne, I want you to tell. The murder of Miss Carne, George Forrester repeated slowly. I know nothing about that. She made Ruth break it off with me, and I nearly killed Ruth, and I would have killed her if I had had the chance, but I never had. I was glad when I heard she was killed, but I don't know who did it. But your knife was found by her body, Ronald said. You must have done it, Forrester. Murdered Miss Khan, the man said, half raising himself on his elbow in surprise. Never. I swear I had nothing to do with it. A rush of blood poured from his mouth, for one of the spears had pierced his lung, and a moment later George Forrester fell back dead. The disappointment and revulsion of feeling were too great for Ronald Mervyn, and he fainted. When he recovered, the surgeon was leaning over him. "'You mustn't talk, lad. You must keep yourself quite quiet, or we shall have fever setting in, and all sorts of trouble.' Ronald closed his eyes and lay back quietly. "'How could this be?' He thought of Mary Armstrong's letter, of the chain of proofs that had accumulated against George Forrester. They seemed absolutely convincing, and yet there was no doubting the ring of truth in the last words of the dying man. His surprise at the accusation was genuine, his assertion of his innocence absolutely convincing. He had no motive for lying. He was dying, and he knew it. Besides, the thing had come so suddenly upon him there could have been no time for him to frame a lie, even if he had been in a mental condition to do so. Whoever killed Margaret Kahn, Ronald Mervyn was at once convinced that it was not George Forrester. There he lay, thinking for hours over the disappointment that the news would be to Mary Armstrong, and how it seemed more unlikely than ever that the mystery would ever be cleared up now. Gradually his thoughts became more vague, until at last he fell asleep. Upon the following day the wounded were sent down under an escort to King Williamstown, and there for a month Ronald Mervyn lay in hospital. 
he had written a few lines to mary armstrong saying that he had been wounded but not dangerously and that she need not be anxious about him any more for the kaffirs were now almost driven from their last stronghold and that the fighting would almost certainly be over before he was fit to mount his horse again george forrester is dead he said he was mortally wounded when fighting bravely against the kaffirs i fear dear that your ideas about him were mistaken and that he like myself has been the victim of circumstantial evidence but i will tell you more about this when i write to you next while lying there ronald thought over the evidence that had been collected against george forrester and debated with himself whether it should be published as mary had proposed it would doubtless be accepted by the world as proof of forrester's guilt and of his own innocence and even the fact that the man when dying had denied it would weigh for very little with the public for men proved indisputably to be guilty often go to the scaffold asserting their innocence to the last but would it be right to throw this crime upon the dead man when he was sure that he was innocent for ronald did not doubt for a moment the truth of his denial had he a right even for the sake of mary's happiness and his own to charge the memory of the dead man with the burden of this foul crime ronald felt that it could not be the temptation was strong but he fought long against it and at last his mind was made up no he said at last i will not do it george forrester was no doubt a bad man but he was not so bad as this it would be worse to charge his memory with it than to accuse him if he were alive in the one case he might clear himself in the other he cannot i cannot clear my name by fouling that of a dead man and so ronald at last sat down to write a long letter to mary armstrong telling her the whole circumstances the joy with which he received her news his conversation with george forrester which seemed wholly to confirm her views the pang of agony he felt when he saw the man who he believed could alone clear him in the hands of the kaffirs and the desperate charge to rescue him and then he gave the words of the confession and expressed his absolute conviction that the dying man had spoken the truth and that he was really innocent of margaret Kahn's murder he then discussed the question of still publishing ruth powlett's statement giving first the cause of george forrester's enmity against margaret Kahn, and the threat he had uttered and then the discovery of the knife i fear you will be ashamed of me mary when i tell you that for a time i almost yielded to the temptation of clearing myself at his expense but you must make allowance for the strength of the temptation on the one side was the thought of my honour restored and of you won on the other the thought that now george forrester was dead this could not harm him but of course i finally put the temptation aside honour purchased at the expense of a dead man's reputation would be dishonour indeed now i can face disgrace because i know i am innocent i could not bear honour when i thought that i had done a dishonourable action and i know that i should utterly forfeit your love and esteem did i do so i can look you straight in the face now i could never look you straight in the face then do not grieve too much over the disappointment we are now only as we were when i said good-bye to you i had no hope then that you would ever succeed in clearing me and i have no hope now i have not got up my strength again yet and am therefore perhaps just at present a little more disposed to repine over the disappointment than i ought to do but this will wear off when i get in the saddle again there will i think be no more fighting at any rate with the sandili kaffirs 
for we hear this morning that they have sent in to beg for peace, and I am certain we shall be glad enough to grant it, for we have not much to boast about in the campaign. Of course, they will have to pay a very heavy fine in cattle, and will have to move across to the other side of the Kai. Equally, of course, there will be trouble again with them after a time, when the memory of their losses has somewhat abated. I fancy a portion of our force will march against the Basutos, whose attitude has lately been very hostile, but now that the Geikers have given in, and we are free to use our whole force against them, it is scarcely probable they will venture to try conclusions with us. If they settle down peaceably, I shall probably apply for my discharge, and perhaps go in for farming, to carry out my first idea of joining a party of traders going up the country and getting some shooting among the big game. I know that, disappointed as you will be with the news contained in this letter, it will be a pleasure to you to tell the girl you have made your friend that after all the man she once loved is innocent of this terrible crime. She must have suffered horribly while she was hiding what she thought was the most important part of the evidence. Now she will see that she has really done no harm, and as you seem to be really fond of her, it will, I am sure, be a great pleasure to you to be able to restore her peace of mind in both these respects. I should think now that you and your father will not remain any longer at Carnesford, where neither of you has any fitting society of any sort, but will go and settle somewhere in your proper position. I would much rather that you did, for now it seems absolutely certain that nothing further is to be learned. It would trouble me to think of you wasting your lives at Carnesford. You said in your last letter that the discovery you have made had brought you four years nearer to happiness, but I have never said a word to admit that I should change my mind at the end of the five years that your father spoke of. Still I don't know, Mary. I think my position is stronger by a great deal than it was six months ago. I told my captain who I was, and all the other officers know now. Most of them came up and spoke very kindly to me before I started on my way down here, and I am sure that when I leave the corps they will give me a testimonial, saying that they are convinced by my behaviour while in the corps that I could not have been guilty of this crime. I own that I myself am less sensitive on the subject than I was. One has no time to be morbid while leading such a life as I have been for the last nine months. Perhaps, but I will not say any more now, but I think somehow that at the end of five years I shall leave the decision in your hands. It has taken me two or three days to write this letter, for I am not strong enough to stick with it for more than half an hour at a time, but as the post goes out this afternoon I must close it now. We have been expecting a mail from England for some days. It is considerably overdue, and I need not say how I am longing for another letter from you. I hear the regiment will be back from the front tonight. Men and horses want a few days' rest before starting on this long march to Basutoland. I shall be very glad to see them back again. Of course, the invalids who, like myself, are somewhat pulled down by their wounds, are disgusted at being kept here. The weather is frightfully hot, and even in our shirt-sleeves we shall be hardly able to enjoy Christmas Day. The Cape Rifles arrived at King Williamstown an hour after the post had left, and in the evening the colonel and several of the officers paid a visit to the hospital to see how their wounded were getting on. Ronald, who was sitting reading by his bedside, and the other invalids who were strong enough to be on their feet, at once got up and stood to attention. Stopping and speaking a few words to each of the men of his own corps, the colonel came on. Mervyn, he said, as he and the officers came up to Ronald, 
I want to shake your hand. I have heard your story from Captain Twentyman, and I wish to tell you in my own name, and in that of the other officers of the regiment, that we are sure you have been the victim of some horrible mistake. All of us are absolutely convinced that a man who has shown such extreme gallantry as you have, and whose conduct has been so excellent from the day he joined, is wholly incapable of such a crime as that with which you were charged. You were, of course, acquitted, but at the same time I think that it cannot but be a satisfaction for you to know that you have won the esteem of your officers and your comrades, and that in their eyes you are free from the slightest taint of that black business. Give me your hand. Ronald was unable to speak. The colonel and all the officers shook him by the hand, and the former said, I must have another long talk with you when we get back from the Basuto business. I have mentioned you very strongly in regimental orders, upon two occasions, for extreme gallantry, and I cannot but think that it would do you some good in the eyes of the public were a letter signed by me to appear in the English papers, saying that the Sergeant Blunt of my regiment, who has so signally distinguished himself, is really Captain Mervyn, who, in my opinion, and that of my officers, is a cruelly injured man. But we can talk over that when I see you again. After the officer left the room, Ronald Mervyn sat for some time with his face buried in his hands. The colonel's words had greatly moved him. Surely such a letter as that which Colonel Somerset had proposed to write would do much to clear him. He should never think of taking his own name again or re-entering any society in which he would be likely to be recognised, but with such a testimonial as that in his favour, he might hope in some quiet place to live down the past, and should he again be recognised, could still hold up his head with such an honourable record as this to produce in his favour. Then his thoughts went back to England. What would Mary and her father say when they read such a letter in the paper? It would be no proof of his innocence, yet he felt sure that Mary would insist upon regarding it as such, and would hold that he had no right to keep her waiting for another four years. Indeed, he acknowledged to himself that if she did so, he would have no right to refuse any longer to permit her to be mistress of her own fate. End of chapter 18